0: I wonder, if I, if I asked a random group of people in the street perhaps what the word grace meant, I suspect I would get quite a wide range of answers. Some would identify it as a girl's name. Others might say um, it was something about poise or, or beauty of movement, a graceful person, a few More religious people might say, no, it's a form of prayer said before meals. We say grace. But actually, I don't think one person in a hundred would use the word grace quite in the way the Bible uses that word. In the Bible, grace is unmerited favour it's closely related to forgiveness. we in forgiveness, we deserve punishment and 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 forgiveness is the, the, the unmerited um, withholding of punishment and indeed giving of ourselves to that person in relationship and so uh, uh, one, of the, one, one, of, one aspect of grace in the Bible is forgiveness. It's also um, related to other things like, like mercy or generosity. Sometimes the generosity of God is described as the grace of God and, and so on. Grace is unmerited favour, giving a good gift to someone that they don't deserve. That's what the Bible means. By grace. And um, I want to suggest to you this evening human beings desperately need grace. We need grace in our dealings with one another for, for a start. Um, some claim justice is all we need, but, uh, but justice is very, very difficult for people to judge. One wag wrote, um, Justice is what you get when the decision is in your favour. And in a sense that's right. Or at least um, justice has a nasty habit of transmuting really into um, seeking vengeance or reprisal because things didn't go in our favour. The Second World War, for instance, was fuelled by cries for justice after the Treaty of Versailles, the, the uh, Balkan conflict was um, um, was fed by um, desire for justice on the Serb side and on the Croat side. Justice so easily overflows into into uh, vengeance i 'm reminded of um, Mark Twain's story in Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry comes across a feud between two families, the Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons. And Huckleberry asks his friend Buck what a feud is. Well, says Buck, a feud is this way. Apologies to Janie for my bad accent, but I don't think you can say it without having an effort. A feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and he kills him. And then that other man's brother kills him. And then the other brothers on both sides go for one another. And the cousins join in. And by and by everybody's killed off and there ain't no more few. But it's kind of slow and it takes a long time. There's been far too much of that in our world. We need grace. Grace. In human relationships. And if we need it amongst ourselves, how much more do we need it in our relationship with God? Some people think they will take their chance with the God of justice. But they are fools. They are deluded. God knows everything about us. And though in some some cases and some situations we may find that his deep knowledge of us vindicates us. There we know, if we are honest about ourselves, there are plenty of times when his justice will leave us in deep trouble. If we face only a God of justice, we are in trouble. But you see, the Bible says God is actually a God of grace. God is a God who gives unmerited favour to his people. And that's what we're going to dwell on uh, in this prologue of John um, this evening. We, we've uh, spent um, several weeks and we could have spent a lot more looking at these these first few extraordinary verses in jo- John's Gospel. Um, we've seen some amazing things already. Two weeks ago, we saw this passage redefines who God is. In the beginning was the word says um, um, uh, John, who was both with God and was God. Though there is only one God, the Bible affirms from beginning to end, God is not simple. He is eternally communicative. Indeed, we can we can only understand him as a God who communicates And his communicativeness is his word, which somehow is embodied, was eternally in existence with God and yet was God. And then we found uh, in verse 14, extraordinary thing, the word became flesh. This word, of course, is Jesus. Jesus claims that there is still a God the Father up there in heaven, but he also is the one true God. There is only one God, and yet somehow he, he, he manifests himself. Indeed, as we come to understand him, we see him as God the Father, God the Son. And indeed, the rest of the Bible will say, somehow there is communicating the love between the Father and the Son, God the Holy Spirit as well. It blows my mind. I don't blame you if it blows your mind. But that's what John is starting to introduce ourselves, us to in this prologue as we started to see in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Then last week we saw, perhaps slightly but more easy to get our heads around, we saw that this passage redefines where we find truth. The, the um, dry academics may think that they find truth by dispassionate, objective, detached theorising, but, but, but John says, no, Jesus burst onto the scene full of all the life of God and that life was the light of all mankind. And using that, that metaphor of light, he says you find the truth in Jesus. All other truths Actually, are a subcategory of the truth. Who is Jesus, the light of all mankind? We noted last week, didn't we? How appropriate is the motto of Oxford University: "The Lord is my light." Absolutely, He is. There is no light without the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's that's where we've been. Um, over the last couple of uh, uh, a couple of weeks, and already, uh, you know, these are not modest claims that John is making about Jesus. They are they are gobsmacking, enormous, all-encompassing claims, all focused on Jesus. When Jesus came, we could no think of, no longer think of God simply. When when Jesus came, actually, there was finally light on this world, and all truth found. It's, uh, it's, it's grounding in Jesus. And now we're going to focus on a third thing, which I hope in some ways will complete the, the, the prologue. There's much more we could say. We're going to say that but we're going to see that when Jesus came, finally we know what grace is. Human beings need grace. And Jesus shows us that grace. That's what I want us to see in these these verses. And uh, in order to get there, I want us to understand um, what he's saying in verse 16. The old NIV was not so clear on this verse, but the new one's got it exactly right, I think. So, I hope you've got a new NIV. If you haven't, you'll notice the difference. Verse 16, out of his fullness, says John, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. John is describing a grace which replaces a grace already given. He, he's, he's setting up a before and after grace. Picture, And when we examine the verses around it, we will see what he means. He means, effectively, there is a before, a before Jesus came, and there is an after Jesus came, and when Jesus came, the world saw a new form of grace. This grace, he already says in verse, verse 16, came out of his fullness. So let's, um, uh, let's see uh, two things that John says fitted into this before and after picture. Two things that are intimately connected but they are distinguishable about the, the way that Jesus brought grace into the world in a new way. They are this. Jesus brought, brought, brought for us a new vision of grace. Jesus brought for us a new dispensation of grace. I'll explain that one in a minute. But let me just, um, let me just show this new vision of grace. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Here he is, Jesus, full of grace and truth. And we've already talked about uh, the truth that we were focusing on that last week. So we're going to focus on the, the grace that he was full of this week. And in order to understand what John's talking about, we need to notice two aspects of his vocabulary. First of all, he says something interesting when he says he made his dwelling amongst us in verse 14. Literally, uh, it can be translated he tabernacled amongst us. He's consciously wanting us to, to go back in our minds to Old Testament times when there was a tent called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, this great tent for Israel served as a, as a as a massive visual aid it was the place in Israel where god dwelt it was the pla- it was a place of, of awe and glory but it was it, it was a place also that shouted at you you can't really come near god there was a most holy place and it was surrounded by by thick curtains and then more curtains there were sacrifices that people had to make so that animals paid for their sins effectively before they could come anywhere near God. So the tabernacle was, 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 was a picture of God dwelling amongst them and in one sense the big message was you'd better be careful. Now there is a new tabernacle says John. Now there is a new revelation of God's grace. Here he is tabernacling amongst us, Jesus. Here he is dwelling amongst us, but but without curtains. Now there is a sacrifice associated with this tabernacle that really pays for our Sins. It will be Jesus dying on the cross. Now there is grace. Now there is forgiveness. Now there is mercy from God. Now there is fullness of grace. Because in Jesus, God has come down to us and mediated his grace. The second thing in verse, verse 14 that we need to pick up is when John says, we have seen his glory. Again, it alludes back to another Old Testament story, um, also in the, in the same book of Exodus, in the life of Moses. Moses was facing a, a, a very difficult job of, of leading the people at one point, and he said to God, now show me your glory. And God's answer, it's in Exodus 34, is very, very interesting. He tells Moses, first of all, no one may see me and live. You can't really see me, Moses. But you can see my back and you can hear about me. And God passes in front of Moses declaring the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. It's one of the great biblical statements of God's character and it gets repeated again and again and again in the Old Testament. And it gets sort of distilled down into just a a couple of attributes. And it's those two attributes that John is talking about here. Grace and truth. So John is, uh, John is hearkening us back to that, that moment when Moses almost saw God and heard about God. But now John is saying something radical. Now we've seen him. You may not see me and live, said God. No, we've seen his glory, says John. You um, can only hear my character, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and merciful God. No, no, we've seen him full of grace and truth, says John. We've seen something better than Moses saw. That's what he's saying. God's tabernacle amongst us in a better way than he ever did in Moses' day. We have seen the glory of God in a better way than Moses ever did. And it's summed up in this full of grace and truth. When Jesus uh, came to this earth, you see that's what he came to bring. And that's what we see now. Lepers went to Jesus and received the grace of healing and acceptance. We have seen the glory of God full of grace and truth. Blind people came to Jesus and received sight. We see the grace of God in the teaching of Jesus. We see the grace of God in Jesus' dealings with, with, with children, with women, with scholars, with tramps, with the hungry, with the thirsty, with the dying, with the dead. We see the grace of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We see the grace of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see, we, we, we see the grace of Jesus on a mountain called Calvary as Jesus dies for our sins. We see the grace of God in Jesus in ways that no one before had seen it. A new vision of grace from God. You know there is a tragedy related to that? The tragedy is that so rarely and so little is the grace of God manifested in churches that claim to stand for that Jesus. Mark Twain, that was a, a major part of his intention in writing that story in Huckleberry Finn. Because those two warring families, the Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons, they went to the same church. They turned up on Sunday after they'd been shooting each other with their guns and sat in the pew. We, Twain says it was pretty ornery preaching all about brotherly love and such like tiresomeness and everybody said it was a good sermon and they all talked it over going home and had such a powerful lot to say about faith and good works and free grace and pre-for-all destination and I don't know what at all. But it didn't seem to me one of the. It seemed to me one of the roughest Sundays I had run across yet. You get the point? I remember the story of uh, that Philip Yancey tells in uh, his book. What's so amazing about grace? He tells of 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 someone who who met a prostitute on the, on the streets, who was desperate, desperate for grace. She knew she needed grace. She knew she needed forgiveness. And he said, he, he said to her, why, why don't you go to church? And she looked at him as if he was mad and said, I wouldn't get anything there. Maybe she was wrong. But too often, she would have been right. See, for believers here, if we stand for anything, it is grace. The grace of God revealed in Jesus. I know it's not simple. I know it's complex. I know that the same Jesus who welcomed little children and who... Who who, who 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 touched lepers, was the one who excoriated other people. But we stand for grace. If we are people who have been touched by this new vision of grace in Jesus, we must be people who are transformed by it. And if you're not yet a a Christian here this evening, if if you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, that is the place to go. That's what John's saying. That is the place to go. Yeah, uh, I hope it's manifested in churches. But here's the place to go to the Jesus of the Bible who, who has manifested the grace of God. That is the primary place for you to go and find this grace. After that, perhaps we need to find a church that in some way echoes it. But just because there are disappointments in churches doesn't mean to me that we need to think that all Christianity is a disappointment. Jesus Christ has come to this world full of grace and truth out of God's fullness he came. A new vision then of God's grace, John says. Don't we need it? And then, slightly more briefly, a new dispensation of God's grace. By that I mean a a new way that God's grace is distributed, is distributed is it, it, handed out, is given to people. That's what John is describing in verse uh, uh, seven, seventeen. The law, he says, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Note, note that this is explicitly an explanation of, of verse sixteen, where we said we've received one grace in place of. Another. Clearly, what John is trying to say is that the grace already given is the law that was given through Moses. And that is grace in one sense. It is, a, it is a good thing for God to graciously reveal how He calls us to live. That is a good thing. But the law, this revelation of the requirements of God, is limited. Crucially, it can tell you what to do, but it cannot enable you to do it. But now, says uh, uh, says John, there is a new grace, um, a, a new grace which we, we, which we, which comes over it like a like a like a great um, supervening tsunami, and and gives us the grace we need in place of that minor grace. That's what he's saying. This is what Jesus Christ brings. He is full of grace and truth. He gives you the grace of forgiveness through his death on the cross. You know, the old law that had sacrifices and all that sort of thing. To be honest, it was so much play-acting. The writer of the Hebrews says animals never could pay for the sins of human beings. It needed something else. It needed God to become a human being. And now he has. And so you get a new grace of forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ. But more than that, the, the, the Bible says that, that as we come to trust that Jesus, we become united to Jesus in new ways. And we find that that union with Jesus enables us now to live as God calls us to do. Because we find that our hearts are touched so that now we love God. We find that now we want to serve him and we are truly transformed. And, and we find that the Holy Spirit comes down and pours out the love of God into our hearts in ways that truly do transform us. And all, all that comes through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses but hey, this has come through Jesus Christ. Christ, which would you prefer? (coughs) If that's not yet your experience, I, I want to encourage you to seek it with all of your heart. To know what God requires you to do, that is a good thing. That is a grace, but it is an Old Testament grace. It is a before Jesus grace. It is to know Jesus in ways that bind you to Jesus. To know the forgiveness that only came through the cross of Jesus. To know the transformation that only comes through knowing Jesus. That is what true grace is all about. And I urge you to seek it with all of your heart, if you are a believer here, then let me say, the most amazing thing has happened to you. You have received grace out of the fullness of God. We've seen the true Jesus, full of grace and truth. And he has not only won every single uh, forgiveness for every single one of your sins—he has begun to change you. I want to end by reading two poems. The first one requires a bit of bit of practice. You may have heard it in uh, the film *Invictus*. It's the title of the uh, poem, and *Invictus* is about Nelson Mandela. Uh I deeply respect Nelson Mandela, but actually what that film showed me about him, in part, horrified me. He, he loved that poem. I don't know whether he still does, but he certainly did. He used to recite the poem regularly to his fellow inmates on uh, Robin Island. The poem, as you'll see in just a minute, is all about the world not being a place of grace. It's all about the world being a dark, godless place. A place where only the rugged, solid, determined individual can have victory. And I learned, actually, that it took its toll on Vandela's family. He was... Um, prone to write um, to his children, urging them that uh, the only way for them to break free of their disadvantaged situation was a sort of rugged, determined individual individualism where they, would, where they had to do superhuman feats and it drove him away from his children. Let me read it to you. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. a man that on death row scribbled out that poem and left it as his last will and testimony. It was the Oklahoma bomber, Timothy McVeigh. But I want to read you another poem. This is by a man who has been touched by Jesus. A man who knew the grace that is found in Jesus. A man called George Herbert. Love bade me welcome. Yet my soul drew back. Guilty of dust and sin, but quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, Ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says Love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, said love, and taste my meat. So I did sit.